spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Your cure for the con hangover, it's episode 184 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and whether you were able to go to New York Comic Con or not, you still kind of breathed in all the news through social media or websites or whatever or on our podcast. We did some of the news last week. That's kind of why I'm here, you know, to give you that feeling once again and give you my breakdown of the things that not just were at New York Comic Con, but news that came out after New York Comic Con as well. So we'll talk about trailers like Star Wars, Justice League. I'll do that coming up. Plus, a little bit of something that we don't do often enough on this show, and that's review comics that we've already reviewed. Get a little bit later on in the run and find out what I think of them. So before we get to trailers and the Arrowverse reviews and all that stuff, it's time for what we're reading in Dark Knight's Metal number three next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Justin Jordan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab that tablet, long box, or laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and as promised, a look back into another big DC Comics event that's been going on, and that's DC Dark Knight's Metal Number 3, of course, by Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, on the art, Jonathan Glapion, also helping out there, and Fico Placencia, and Steve Wands on the colors and the letters. Now, I will have to spoil... Some stuff from Dark Knight's Metal number two, if you haven't read that yet. But, of course, going to try and do this one spoiler-free, as always. You saw that Batman took the secret weapon, which turned out to be Baby Darkseid, to what he thought was one tomb, ended up at another, and the mantling process has started. The Court of Owls were involved and set the whole thing in motion to bring Barbatos, and Batman was the gateway, was the doorway to bring Barbatos to... I guess the world of the light, I guess, is the best way that I could possibly describe it. And that's really where Dark Knight's Metal Number 3 kicks off. And again, I'm really going to avoid going into details in this issue because it's really not a whole lot I can say without spoiling it. So all I can really do is give you what I thought of this issue. One thing that stuck out to me was the attention that was brought to the relationship between Superman and Batman, between Clark Kent and and Bruce Wayne, because this book does start out innocently enough and then gets kind of turned on its ear, which I think was really, really cool that that, uh, Scott Snyder and the gang did that. Because Superman is is a beacon of hope, right? And then when you take hope away like that, it's just so stunning and abrupt, and I love that that was the beginning of this issue. But that is a theme that we've seen the first couple of issues of Dark Knight's Metal is that relationship I think it grows deeper here in this issue, maybe deeper than it's ever been or has been in a long time anyway. And there's a lot of great attention brought to that. And this is a very Superman-heavy issue, which I absolutely don't have a problem with because I feel like there's a key there. Now, obviously you know that Superman and Wonder Woman get out of the predicament they were in at the end of Metal Number 2 because if they didn't, I mean, where would the story go from there? So that's not really a spoiler to me, but... They weren't the only ones that got out. They weren't the only ones. And there was a ga- there's a gathering somewhere. And I don't want to tell you where it is or what the circumstances are. But I will say this, that the gathering that they had at this place was probably one of the 
not just the hardest things to read, but one of the greatest things to read that I've read in a long time. Because if you love these characters, these DC characters like I do, to see a lot of them come together in this setting and what's being discussed, it really just hit home for me. And, and there was a couple of characters that I really, really love that we've already seen and heard of in the series before, like Dr. Fate was part of this as well. And you know I'm going to scream and holler every time I see Dr. Fate on a panel. So, Scott, if you're listening, thank you for that, by the way, because anytime I get to see Dr. Fate, especially in a big setting like this, I'm all for it. But just the sense of urgency that was also created in this book, and, I mean, you bring Damien into it, you bring Nightwing into it, and the sense of urgency that they create once they decide, okay, this is what we're doing, this is how we're going to try and stop this, it's just so palpable, and it's so right there, and it's on. It's at the forefront of your brain the entire time you're reading this. And I don't care how good a comic is. Sometimes your mind can wander a little bit, right? Or maybe you're looking away or thinking about what you're going to read next. I couldn't think of anything but what I was reading right here in front of me and the combinations of teams to get put together. And then you see the team, Barbatos's team, I guess is the best way you could call them. And... I like to just call him the Batman who laughs because I think that that's the best way to describe him. Just the way he is with his cohorts, in a weird way, it just seems so natural and naturally evil. And it almost seems normal in a way, which is kind of creepy. And I don't know how this atmosphere was created by the team. But it just seems like it, this, this is one of those teams where they're scary because it seems like they don't have any fear of being defeated. And you get that. You don't really get that a lot in comics. I don't see the end of the road here. And I think that that's probably one of my favorite parts of this series, especially how this book ends, which you know I'm not going to sit here and spoil it, right? I'm going to make you wait two months ahead of time just like I have to to find out what's going to happen at the end of this issue. But it's going to rip your guts out. That's the best way I can really describe it. It's it's really going to rip your guts out. And you want to talk about not knowing what the end game is going to be. The ending of this book does a lot to lend itself to that, let me tell you. So Dark Knight's Metal continuing to be a pull for me. You have to be reading this. If you haven't started it yet, just go back to issue one and start from the beginning and, and definitely read this series because you don't know what you're missing out on. Probably one of the best event series that DC has done and as far as a major event series other than when they first put Rebirth together in a long, long time. Now let's go to a little bit of something new from Image Comics and something that you've seen if you follow Justin Jordan on Twitter or Facebook. You've seen him talk about this a lot. So let's talk about it now. The Family Trade, which is written by Justin Jordan and Nikki Ryan, art by Morgan Beam and letters by Rachel Deering, cover also by Morgan Beam as well. And this follows kind of a family of assassins that protect a city called The Float and kind of keep the peace and make sure that everything runs as it should be. Now, one thing you know about Justin Jordan, if you're a Justin Jordan fan, is his love of cats. And I will say this, that gets worked into this book in some of the most hilarious ways. And some of the stuff that's written here, and Justin, I'm friends with you on Facebook, I know you know that. Some of the stuff that's written in here are so Justin. So when you see that Justin and Nikki Ryan wrote this book together, I can you can tell... Where the Justin came in, for sure, on this, on a lot of parts, especially when it had to do with the cats. And the way that that's worked in is quite clever and quite hilarious. But basically, the city of the float is a neutral city. I mean, this is this is Switzerland at its finest, but to the nth degree, I guess you could call the float. And it's where everything seems to thrive. It's where everybody goes to do business. And somebody needs to kind of 
keep the peace behind the scenes, right? Well, the fam- one of the members of the family has to do something and it doesn't quite go well. And of course, that's how a lot of great stories start, right? But then that's where we kind of get the interesting part because now, because that didn't go well, it has to be rectified and it's not really going to be let go. What I love in this book that, that Justin and company did was you give me the backstory. You give me all of the stuff that's about the float. And sometimes the city is a character in itself. And this land of the float is definitely its own character and how it was brought together and why it was brought together was a forefront and an important part of this first issue. And I think that that was so, so important to do. Tell me why I need to care about all of this inner workings. And that is exactly what Justin Jordan and Nikki Ryan and company did. So bravo on that. The characters in this book, while we don't get a whole lot of names of characters, a lot of them are quite likable and quirky And I love that. And it goes right along with the art, which is very much a watercolor look. I really love that work in certain books. And Morgan Bean bringing that to this book, I think was really perfect, especially in a city called The Float. You kind of want that, don't you? You kind of want that watercolor look. And there there was a part that was kind of in a black and white shade in a certain respect, almost like an old map look, which I thought was really, really neat. Now, what you're finding is something going on behind the scenes that threatens to kind of upset the balance of the float. And that's where the family has to come in and try and stop it. And there's a lot of political undertones in this book. Talked about that with a couple of weeks ago with a story that I reviewed. And it, it makes sense, though. And especially when you're talking about a story where the piece is trying to be kept in a neutral area, how can you not have political undertones, right? So kind of where this book ends... It sets up where the rest of the story is going to go and who your who your main players are. You know who the main players are. You know who's going to have to go after who and what's going to have to happen. So there's no real mystery there. But what the end game is going to be, that is the real mystery of this book. So it's very charming. Um, I will say that it, it didn't blow me away, but it was very, very charming. And I'm very interested to see where it does go from here. I did dig it. I liked the art. I'm not ready to call it a pull just yet, so I'm going to give this a pickup. I think this is one of those series where you grab the first issue, try it, and see if it grabs you. And it definitely did make me interested to pick up the second issue, and I will definitely put this on my three-issue rule for sure to see if I if I like it enough. I will revisit this book for you and let you know what I think of it because I think that this is one of those books where because I got a lot of setup in the first issue, I'm thinking by the second issue, this is one I might be able to tell you to start putting in your pull box. That's going to do it for what we're reading, but you know we have a ton of shows that we have to get to review, so let's do that. This Week in Geektainment, multiple versions, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harris from Superdog. Uh, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It should be no surprise that this week is another extra-sized This Week in Geektainment because the CW had their big DC TV premieres. Let's start off with Monday and Supergirl. This is going to be spoiler-filled, by the way, and I'm not going to go into all the plot details of the episode because either you've seen it or you've read about it by now, so I'm just going to go ahead and say what I liked, maybe I didn't like. Let's start off with Kara. Or should I say Supergirl, because that was the main focus of this episode, was that basically Kara, very cynical, wanting to hold, ditch the whole Kara Danvers persona and just be strictly Supergirl. And that was the thing that we heard heading into the season was that Kara Danvers was going to be gone and Supergirl was going to take the forefront. And yeah, I got to tell you, Melissa Benoist being all cynical and angry, it felt very uncomfortable at first, but at the same time... It was brilliant, too, because getting to see that broken side of her, and there was one point 
and when she was arguing with Alex saying, you know, Cara Danvers sucks right now. And, you know, why would I want to be that sad girl that's just sad about her boyfriend leaving? And that was very, very interesting that they went that route. And it got very uncomfortable between her and the group and her and her family members and stuff like that. So I do like that it was brilliant that they did that. And it definitely made me have that emotion that I'm guessing that they wanted us to have is like, wow. She's just out of control right now, and this is so out of character for her, and it felt wrong. But I will also say that Lena Luthor kind of sticking by her no matter what and knowing that something's something's wrong with her, I kind of thought that eventually, and maybe they still will, go the route where Lena finally turns on Supergirl, finally turns on Kara, and being a full-on Luthor But it just seems less and less likely now that that's going to happen. And at first I was thinking that that was a bad thing. And now I'm thinking it's not really that bad of a thing at all. I kind of like this friendship relationship that Kara has with Lena. And not only that, her being on the side of good really, really kind of makes sense in the current setting. So if they made her evil at this point, I'm not sure it would make sense. Or maybe that's something you're saving for a bigger, bigger punch down the line. I mean, if you get that far and it seems like Supergirl... Certainly will. But I love the fact that in this episode, we kind of have your villain of the week, I guess you could say. But at the same time, we're also building on something bigger, it looks like. And that's with Adrian Pasdar's character on the show, who I got to tell you, Morgan Edge is your typical corporate just jerk who wants to take over the world, push the little guy aside. And that's one thing that Supergirl's done very well is they've stuck up for the little guy sort of thing. So they've really done a good job of being the hero for the common person, I guess you could say, and not the rich elite. They put the rich elite on one side and the common people on the other side. And it's been a real battle. And it's very under the current, but not anymore in this season because we see that Morgan is trying to take over National City bit by bit. And not only is he fighting against Lena, he's fighting against Catco. We see the jockeying position for Catco, which I thought was really neat. But then you see... Who Kara sort of looks to the most when she's looking for advice? And the common theme about amongst everybody on the, on the show seems to be that it's Hank Henshaw. It's, it's John Jones and David Harewood's character. Not only do we see Kara go to him kind of in a moment right when they're getting ready to track down who's stolen this item and who's going to be potentially dropping a bomb on the city and attacking the city. We see that, but we also see him talking to her about, you know, Cara Danvers is one of the strongest people I know, and he sort of starts to bring her back. And then you also see Alex talk to Hank about walking her down the aisle for their wet, for her and Maggie's wedding So because her dad just can't do it. He can't be there, So and, and he gets choked up. It seems like the central character in the show, other than Supergirl, her, Supergirl herself, continues to be John Jones and there's sort of moving away from the whole Hank Henshaw thing and moving towards John Jones and I think that that's a smart move by them as well and it was very subtle the way that that happened and speaking of subtle we got to see our first look at Odette Annabelle's character Rain on the show in this first episode and you sort of see where that break kind of takes place with her, with everything that happened with her daughter and having to save her. And maybe Supergirl was the reason for that because her daughter looks like she idolizes Supergirl. And that seems to where the anger is going to come from. And I want to know how they're going to build on that in future episodes. I'll be very interested to see that. Of course, we see Monel a little bit in kind of a dream sequence. And we see that dream sequence be a big part of the end of the episode 
as well. So, I mean, other than that, your typical team dynamic from Supergirl, which I think is one of the parts that I've loved about the show from the beginning, is that whole team dynamic and how they work together. And you see Kara sort of snap out of it at the end. I'm glad that they didn't drag that out, by the way. I thought that maybe they would drag out the whole sad Kara, angry Kara thing. And maybe you could have for a couple more episodes, but I'm not sure what it made sense. And one thing that the CW TV shows have done very well with DC is they might have a storyline you think that they're going to drag out, and they don't. And I think that this one in particular was for the better, because I'm not sure how much longer it would have worked. They don't really focus on the whole Maggie and Alex relationship a whole lot. There is a little bit on that, but they don't focus on it, which is one of the things I was worried about in the show, too, that that relationship would sort of kind of take over the show a little bit, but it really doesn't. It has its place on the show, but it's not a huge focal point of the show, and I like that they're still making it about Kara and making it about John Jones as well, and I want to know how much of a central figure he's going to be continuing going forward in this particular season, especially when Rain makes her full-on appearance, and where Morgan Edge and Lena Luthor, that whole infighting is going to lead as well. And will we see that Morgan Edge and Rain team up at some point? I think that's kind of where they're going with it. So I'm loving Supergirl so far this season. Hopefully they keep that train going, and we'll see what's going to happen, especially towards the midway point of the season. I think we'll have a good idea of how Supergirl is going to be. Up next, we're going to keep the DC TV realm going. My spoiler-filled reviews of The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Let's move to Tuesday night now, and The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow premieres from the CW on DC TV. Continuing spoiler-filled, by the way, and... You kind of get everything that we thought leading up to this. You know Barry's going to get out of the Speed Force. We'll get to that in just a second. We get to see the Team Flash dynamic without Barry a little bit, though. And seeing Iris take the lead, man, i got to tell you, Candace Patton, a born leader. We've seen her very, very emotional. When I talked to her at San Diego Comic-Con, you've, you heard her say she's kind of cried enough and that we're, we're going to see her stronger and going to see her more in a leadership role as well. And and things did lighten up in this episode too, even though we do see her cry in this episode, which ironically, she said she didn't want to cry anymore and she was crying in this episode. But for good reason, when Barry came back and he was a shell of himself and he was just, I mean, for lack of a better term, crazy. And he's drawing all the stuff on the walls and they think it means something and it really doesn't. And then they finally find the way to pull him out of the speed force, but it seems like Iris is pushing back on that a little bit because she just, in her mind, Barry's gone because that's the only way that she can kind of get through. And that was sad, but it also, it showed a strength in Iris too, which I thought was very, very interesting that she would just push that aside. But at the same time, you see her in her private moments and you could tell that something just wasn't right. And of course, Joe, dad always tells when something's not right. But when Barry comes back, And getting to see him that way, you almost kind of get the whole feeling of, okay, is this worse for the team with him being this way? Or is it worse having him in the Speed Force? Just seemed like it wasn't really an either-or situation. Both were equally terrible, and you just feel for the entire cast when that happens. But we'll get to when Barry snaps out of it in a second. Again, it's a Villain of the Week type flavor. You've got the Samuroid that we're trying to figure out how Wally and Cisco can take down. They're having trouble, so they figure they need Barry because he wants to fight the Flash and only the Flash. Then you enter Caitlin. Who is Caitlin again, by the way? And it just seems like her and Cisco 
sort of just pick up right where they left off. You think things are going to be uneasy. You think things are not going to be quite right. But it just seems like their relationship stands the test of time. And when I talked to Daniel Pennebaker about that, again, at San Diego Comic-Con, she said that we've already kind of seen that play out. But we see here in this episode that, you know, maybe their relationship's a little stronger than we thought. And yes, very platonic in that sense. But it's a lot stronger than we thought if they could just pick up where they left off. But then you see her redeeming moments with Joe and apologizing for everything that Killer Frost did and doing the same with Iris and the entire team. She kind of goes through and apologizes for everything that she did. And, and that was a really cool moment. And one thing that this episode felt to me, it was really family, wasn't it? And, and it tells you just how much you care for this cast. If you if you got any emotion out of this at all, it shows the groundwork that they've laid for all of these seasons to make you care about these characters so much. And there were so many emotional moments in this episode, but one thing they did get back to was the fun. There was definitely a lot of fun in this episode. Everybody was cracking jokes. It was very light. The whole team kid flash and everybody's saying, that's too many syllables. That's enough. I laughed several times in this episode, and I don't think I've laughed this much in a Flash episode in a long, long time. And I'm so glad that they got back to that lighter feel. And then that moment when Barry snaps out of it because Iris gets herself captured on purpose, thinking if she's in danger, that will snap Barry out of it. And what a leap of faith that was by Iris and a huge, bold move. And why Candace Patton, to me, still gets the thumbs up for this episode as the standout performance. Absolutely amazing job. And yes, that does snap Barry out of it. And then that moment with them together, where she, he says, you know, I'll always come back to you sort of thing. And then they're finally together again. It, it was just an amazing moment. And again, a chance where they could have dragged this out for a couple of episodes, just kind of like they did with Flashpoint. When you thought Flashpoint was going to be the basis of the year last season, and it just wasn't, I think that that was actually a smart move that they didn't do it then, and they're not doing it here either. They didn't want to drag it out. They didn't want to make us wait. You give us that redemption right away you give us what we're wanting right away and i think that that's just a smart move not to do that and then we get to see the thinker at the end of the episode and man does he look fantastic and it is to me too going to be a breath of fresh air not having a speedster as the villain this year and you you kind of feel like throughout the entire episode even after Barry gets out of the Speed Force, that something's not quite right. You know, it just seems like it was too easy that this all happened the way that it did. And and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And the thinker, it seems like this was all part of the plan, which I love too. It's giving me Prometheus vibes from last season on Arrow, where it seemed like everything that was happening was part of the plan. And when something seemed too easy, it probably was. So now I've got my radar up for this. And you know that the thinker is going to be a huge part of the rest of this season. And even villain of the week, how is that going to factor in? Are they all going to be part of the thinker's plan as well? Or is that going to be kind of a side thing that's going on in these episodes? So we'll have to see just how connected everything is. But everything you love about the Flash from before, if you didn't want it to be too serious... Definitely not too serious so far in the start of this season, and I can't wait for that to continue. Speaking of a show that's ultimately not serious at this point, and that's DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which in this season three premiere has gone almost full-on humor. Humor was a huge, huge part of this first episode especially, and and you knew they were going to take care of the dinosaur thing. You see that the Time Masters are now the Time Board and Rip Hunter 
is the head of that. And we see him really make short work of the dinosaurs and company. And they're kind of in, chore, in charge of setting th- things right. These aberrations, they're, they're kind of in charge of doing that. And the legends all are doing their own thing. Six months later, we see these crappy jobs that they have. Like Sarah is working at like a, a, um, a towel and a home improvement type store where it, where it's where it's nothing but like a bed bath and beyond type of situation. You see Ray working for this crappy app company and everybody's got their job and they want to get the band back together. They want to be the legends again, but they have to get on the good graces of the time board now. And the time board has zero respect for them. And that was one of the things I, that I thought that was funny as well. It seems like Rip Hunter was the only one that thought they had any redeeming qualities at all. And everybody else just saw it. They were a bunch of screw-ups. And that's kind of where they excel. And, and what I loved about this episode was they embraced that. Finally, it seems like they embrace being the lovable screw-ups. And even their new motto, sometimes we mess things up for the better. Or I'm paraphrasing there. I'm not sure that, that was the exact thing. But that's kind of their new motto. And seeing them back together and doing just that. And everything that happens with Julie Caesar. When they go to that college like toga party on the beach... And they mistake somebody that's dressed up for Julius Caesar as Julius Caesar. That was a funny moment for me. And I, and I genuinely laughed. And I know that maybe I'm the guy that's going to laugh at this because that's a joke I would make. When Mick is eating a Caesar salad in front of Julius Caesar and says, your salad sucks. I'm sorry. I was howling when that happened. I know. I know that that's something that I would do on the show. And that's something you probably roll your eyes for. But but I loved that joke. And did all the jokes land? No. And and is it the greatest story in the world? Absolutely not. But this almost felt like this episode of Legends of Tomorrow almost felt like the zero issue for what's going to be coming up this season. Because you really get no foundation for where the rest of the season is going other than Rip clearly intentionally leave some stuff behind or let some stuff happen to have the Legends come back together. And he even says at one point, we may need them to one of his fellow members of the time board. So he thinks that they're going to be important for what's coming. So we know something's coming, but they haven't really, they don't really get into that in this episode. We don't even really see that in the previews for the next episode either. But Legends of Tomorrow as a whole, to me now is one of those shows that you're either going to love it for what it is, or you're going to hate it for what it is. There is now no middle ground for DC's Legends of Tomorrow at all. And, I guess I'm in the love it category at this point. It kind of annoyed me at first, the way that the direction the show was going. You could kind of see it happening last season, how they sort of ditch any sort of sense of seriousness whatsoever and went full on light and almost full on comedic. At this point, you know what? I've just torn the papers up in the air and said, you know what? Screw it. I like it. I love it for what it is. Let it be exactly that. Let it be the no matter what light show on the lineup where there's corny jokes and sometimes corny storylines, but you know what? It's just fun, and sometimes you need that injection of fun into your life. It was like how when Guardians of the Galaxy breathed that life of fresh air into the Marvel Universe, and Marvel's always started to try to put a focus on humor, but the way Guardians of the Galaxy just made it work, it was unapologetically what it was. Now, I'm not saying that Legends of Tomorrow is anywhere near on par with Guardians of the Galaxy. Don't get me wrong on that, but... Legends of Tomorrow is that show that's going to be like, you know what? We, we're going to be funny. We're going to be light. We're still going to have your villains. We're still going to have missions that we go on. But this team definitely has a humorous bent. They're a bunch of lovable losers. And when they're together, it just works. And that's the way Legends of Tomorrow is. But it's hard to get a beat 
on this current season by this episode because, again, I feel like it felt like a zero issue to sort of reintroduce Rip Hunter in this new time board. I feel like that's what this episode was for and for getting the band back together. We don't really get any substance on where the season is going from here. So in that respect, it's hard for me to say what I feel like the season is going to be after this. It's going to be a wait-and-see thing. And I think this next episode, episode two, I really hope will tell us a heck of a lot more about what's going to be going on. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Flash and DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Even more coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out who the Force is actually with, because it's time for nerd news. And I know it's been out for a while, but I wanted to run down some of the trailers, not just from New York Comic Con, but the biggest trailer of the week has to be, of course, Star Wars the Last Jedi. It's the first footage that we've actually seen from Star Wars The Last Jedi and a ton of it. And I'm not going to go into every little detail of the trailer. It's been broken down a thousand times. I'm just going to go over a few questions because there's a lot of trailers to get to. A few questions that seem to be popping up over and over and over again. The first one I'm going to address is, is Luke turning to the dark side? Are we going to see Dark Luke at some point? We see the dark robe. Well, you know, we saw him dressed in dark in Return of the Jedi, and that didn't mean he was turning evil, even though you know, there might have been flashes there at some point during that movie. But no, I actually think that if we're following the beats of Empire Strikes Back here, which I think there are going to be some beats from that, and that doesn't really bother me. I know it bothers some people, but it doesn't bother me. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing Ray go through the Dagobah trials right now with Luke, and just like he did with Yoda in Empire, and I think what Ray's going to see in her little journey is an evil Luke Skywalker, and that's one of her biggest fears, and fearly it's the dark side, and so on and so forth. So I think what we're seeing there is is we're seeing evil Luke, but I think we're also seeing, and we're actually seeing paranoid Luke, which is very, very interesting to me, and how just scared he is of getting back into the fray. So it'll be interesting to see if she's actually able to draw him out and snap him out of that, or if somebody is able to at some point. Now, the next step that I want to talk about is Kylo Ren. Because there's a lot of mixed messages about Kylo Ren here. Is he going to denounce being Kylo Ren? Is he going to kill Leia in The Last Jedi? Is he going to go full-on evil? Is he going to join up with Rey? What is the deal? So, my thoughts on that, just based on the vibe that I'm getting, is that I? it's hard to say, because... It doesn't seem like he's mature enough to do half of those things, I guess, based on what we we saw in The Force Awakens. He's still kind of an untested, spoiled brat at this point. And that's okay, because that's just where he's at right now. And now he, that he's killed his father, does he have it in him to kill his mother now? I don't know that he does. I don't know that he's actually going to be able to take that step. Of course, that would explain Carrie Fisher's absence in the final movie if they do end up doing that. But I don't think you really need to do that. You don't need to kill Leia off in this movie to to explain why she isn't there in the final movie. I don't think you really need to take that step. I think that that's what he's supposed to do and he's unable to do it. It's the step that I think that we're taking. But if you look at the scene right towards the end of the trailer, it seems to be getting a lot of chatter. We're racing. She needs somebody to help her find her place in all of this. And then you see Kylo Ren outstretch his hand you could tell those are from two completely different scenes in the movie. So they're trying to show you something that maybe isn't really there. But that would be interesting 
if we see Kylo Ren have his Vader redemption moment, I guess is the best way I could put it, earlier in the franchise and to see what would happen if he did turn and I'm guessing he wouldn't just be welcomed into the rebellion, I guess is the best way you can really call them if we're going to compare the two the two eras of the franchise. I don't think he's going to be welcomed with the open arms per se if you were to just sort of jump ship. And we get a pretty good look at Supreme Leader Snoke this time, not just as a hologram, and he wants them to realize their full potential. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about. Are we talking about Kylo Ren here? About untapped potential? Are we talking about Rey? Let's take it a step further. Are we even talking about Finn? We really don't know a whole lot about Finn, and maybe there's something lingering there for him as well. We see him battling Captain Phasma in uh, in the trailer, and I, I got to tell you, I hope we see more Captain Phasma because we really need that. I don't know a whole lot about Finn. We do know that he's going to wake up, though, so that's the good news. We kind of knew that already, but it's going to be really interesting to see the decisions that they make, how much of the influence of the Empire Strike Back is going to be involved here, I don't mind doing step beats. I know that that's a complaint of a lot of Star Wars fans. Well, you know, Force Awakens was too much like A New Hope. We don't want Last Jedi to be too much like Empire Strikes Back. I think that we'll see little winks and nods there, and that's not going to bother me. It didn't bother me the first time. It's not going to bother me this time. As long as it's not full-on, hey, here's the Empire Strikes Back in new clothes. I don't, it doesn't really bother me. So hopefully we get exactly what we want from The Last Jedi. Maybe you've got your tickets already coming out in December. It's got to be a big one. Another big one that's coming out before that, though, is the Justice League, and we got yet another trailer for Justice League at New York Comic Con, and I won't dive deep into that either because we saw a lot of the same beats. We do get our a lot better look at Steppenwolf this time. We see him battling Wonder Woman and a couple of other uh, battle sequences there, and we see a lot of parademons is what we really see. And, I mean, you don't really get a really, really good look at Steppenwolf. We get a couple of quick looks. Looks fine to me. I mean, I have no complaints there. This trailer really didn't sell me on the movie anymore, but it didn't, and it didn't make me worry about it anymore either. The, the one difference that I kind of have in this trailer, other than getting more Cyborg, and Ray Fisher looks like he's going to do quite a good job there. Other than that, I guess maybe this sells me more on Ezra Miller as The Flash, as Barry Allen, because it seems like you've seen the stories, I'm sure, about the early test screening saying that, hey, he's the pre, he's the favorite coming out of this movie. Everybody seems to love Ezra Miller's Flash, so it, it makes me really want to see that more, but at the same time, Barry Allen is a fun-loving guy, but he's also a really smart guy, so I really hope that we get that side of it as well. We don't just get goofy Barry, we get smart Barry, and and Maybe even Cunning Barry. Maybe it's too early for that. Maybe he hasn't been tested enough for that. But I do hope we get Smart Barry along with Fun Barry because I hope we don't get overwhelmed with that. But it does seem like this movie is a little bit lighter. I hope they don't force that either, though. I don't want them to force the humor. I want it to come naturally. Speaking of things that just kind of come naturally, we've got Hulu bringing The Runaways from Marvel in just a couple of weeks now, actually. It's going to be debuting early in November, and we get to see the first look at that from New York Comic Con, and from what I see, looks like it's being pulled pretty much from the comics, at least in the beginning, anyway. Other than that, we just sort of see, see little flashes forward of what's going to be coming in the series, but you get to see the kids, see their parents performing the ritual, and then running off, and then kind of all hell breaks, breaks loose after that. The t- every every cast member that plays one of the teenagers 
Seems like it works. They've all got that teenage attitude and swagger, and it just all feels right. And you kind of understand why this series not only won an Eisner, but why it's being brought to TV so quickly. And I think that Hulu's starting to develop that track record, right, for getting things right. Marvel is kind of, I mean, excuse me, Marvel and Netflix together have already kind of made that partnership work and, and shown real authenticity there, minus Iron Fist. But it seems like that this is going to follow those same beats of the Brian K. Vaughn story where it's probably not going to be shot for shot, but at the same time, it will be at least a good homage to that series and give fans what they want. It seems like that's exactly where they're going with this. Too, too, too early to tell, really, and get a gauge on how this series is going to be, but so far from the first look that we're getting, things look good. Really looking forward to Runaways. But one thing, if you're a fan of the show and you've listened to the show before, you know how big of a Constantine fan I am. And when I saw that we were getting footage from the Constantine animated series that's going to be coming to CWC, I jumped out of the chair that I was sitting in at the time. Not going to lie. So the footage, very, very quick. Again, it shows Constantine being Constantine, brokering a deal, and screwing a bunch of otherworldly beings over to benefit another otherworldly being that he's trying to strike a deal with. And it just doesn't go well. It's typical Constantine. It doesn't always it doesn't go as he's planned. Hardly ever. I mean, let's just let's just call it what it is. His plans never really seem to work out the way he wants them to, but it all works out for him in the end. Just a little bit rougher around the edges. This shows me when I saw this footage, as much as it pains me to say it because I loved the series too, maybe this should have been an animated series. All along. As long as Matt Ryan's involved, I'm cool. Matt Ryan was the best part of that Constantine live action series and probably always will be, even though I love the whole thing. As long as Matt Ryan's involved and he brings that passion that he brings to the character, which he clearly is a huge Constantine fan and loves this character, especially to stick with it. As long as Matt Ryan's involved, I'm all in. But it just seems like not only can you do more with the animation and it's probably budget wise better for the show to do it that way. Didn't it just feel right? It just worked for me. So I think that maybe if this does well, we see this kind of morph away from the CWC or maybe get it gets longer episodes, or maybe we see this eventually move to the new DC streaming service that's going to be coming because we know we've already got Young Justice coming there. We've already got Titans coming there. If this does well, I could see that eventually moving over there. Maybe they're testing the waters with CWC here a little bit. I want to move on now to Blindspot Season 3. They showed the trailer for that finally at New York Comic Con. And here's what I love. Rich.com is now working for the FBI, which I think is hilarious. And there are light moments in this serious show. I'm thinking we're going to get an even lighter Season 3, even though the tables have kind of turned. I'll get to that in a second. With Rich.com on the team, not only is they going to bring... He brings a lot of knowledge. As much of a goofball as he is, he brings a lot of knowledge to the table, and he could definitely help the team. And the team's kind of disbanded. You see Zapata's with CIA now. We've got Patterson off doing her thing. So you've got Jane and Weller sort of back together, but it's kind of hard to tell based on what was happening in the trailer. But here's what I'm looking forward to the most, honestly, guys, for Blindspot, is we're going to see Roman versus... Jane. We see that Roman is going to be a part of season three. It wasn't really clear at the end of season two when we'd see Roman again or if he was going to be a part of season three. Now we know that Roman's going to be a huge part of season three and it is going to go down. I cannot wait 
for season three of Blindspot. And, and it just doesn't make any sense why not enough people are watching this show. If you're listening to me right now and, and you haven't heard our interviews from Blindspot, go back and listen to what we've done and watch this show. Blindspot is a way better show than it gets credit for. And I know it's been moved to Friday. Do whatever you've got to do. Make sure you're watching Blindspot Season 3 when it premieres on October the 27th. Last trailer I want to talk about before we move on to some nerd news is the X-Files. Really quickly on that, the X-Files coming back in 2018. And it looks like this is going to center around Mulder and Scully's son, William. And here's the deal. We see Scully say to Mulder, you have to stop him before he destroys humanity or something along those lines. I'm kind of paraphrasing. So is William going to be kind of, at the end of the day, the big bad of this 11th season? Which Jillian Anderson says this is probably her final season. So we see Scully laid up in the hospital. Does she die in this 11th season? That would be interesting. And is her son responsible for that death? And if so, where does Mulder go with that? And we see some kind of uneasy alliances. We see the cigarette smoking man still involved in the whole deal. We see all we see a couple aliens in the mix. There's just so much going on in this trailer. And and this is one of those things where they waited so long to do the do the revival. And the one that they did in 2016 worked so well. To bring it back again after a couple of years or a year and a half absence, I think was a smart move. Because this, I'm waiting for them to round it out, I guess. And will this season be the one that rounds it out? Although, it'd be kind of nice to get it to 13, right? It'd just be kind of a fitting number for them to get it to, to get to season 13. But as long as it makes sense, they can end it whenever they want or keep it going whenever they want. I'm looking forward to the X-Files coming back. Just a couple of nerd news elements. One of them from, from New York Comic Con, as a matter of fact, was when Robert Kirkman said that, yep, we are finally going to be getting the Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead crossover. And he said that at the panel at New York Comic Con, he did say that, he was very vague, of course, that a character from one show is going to cross over to another show, and that's all he was really going to say. Okay, here's the deal. I think we know that it's going to be someone from The Walking Dead crossing over to Fear the Walking Dead, right? Because the Fear the Walking Dead never really gotten the legs under it that The Walking Dead has. So it just seems like that show needs a lot more help. So why wouldn't you take somebody from The Walking Dead and put them on Fear the Walking Dead? I don't know who it's going to be. If you've got any ideas, go ahead and leave your comment if you're listening on SoundCloud or if you want to tweet to us at Down and Nerdy757. Or comment on the show post at facebook.com slash down and nerdy. Who do you think is going to be moving shows? And, I mean, it just seems like it's not going to be too much longer for The Walking Dead. And as a matter of fact, Kirkman said later on another panel that his first look deal at Amazon, that he's not interested in zombies at all. So even Kirkman is sort of moving on from the whole zombie thing. And I think it's only a matter of time before everyone else does as well. Before we get to some comics news, how about this? Hasbro. Just announced they've they've hired Greg Mordian to oversee their film and TV division, according to Variety. Now, basically, this they're going to start All Spark Pictures, which is going to be the Hasbro universe of movies, and he's going to be the Kevin Feige of this All Spark Pictures. Now, they're still going to have their partnership with Paramount. I think they'd like to see Paramount get more involved in the financial side of it and backing these, but they're going to be more involved in the creative process in expanding that partnership, and that's going to start in January, by the way. So I don't think that we're going to see Bumblebee in this in this kind of umbrella. I think Bumblebee is going to be the one that the last one that's in the can before this whole thing kind of takes over. And this isn't Mordian's first rodeo. I mean, he worked for Paramount in 2013, 
overseeing the TMNT and G.I. Joe franchises. And here's where fans jump in and go, wait a second. What did you just say? Because, you know, their fans were very critical of the G.I. Joe movies and fans were also very critical of the Ninja Turtles movies. Now, here's the deal. I think the Ninja Turtles movies are the best thing that's come out of this Hasbro universe for Paramount in a while. I know that there have been critics of them, but at the same time, I think that they've actually done pretty well with both Turtles movies. So, I mean, you throw G.I. Joe out the window and you've got a 50% track record there. Somebody's got to oversee this and somebody's got to be the one that gives us a clear direction. When they had that huge writer's room, it looked good on paper and seemed like a good idea at the time. But then you get this whole too many cooks in the kitchen thing and maybe everybody's got different ideas and and then it just sort of goes awry and that disbanded very, very quickly. And I think that they're realizing based on what happened with the last night in Transformers that this is not something that we're doing correctly. I think that Hasbro and even Paramount have finally figured that out. Now, we could also see Hasbro go out on their own at some point. I think that's what they'd like to do. But for now, I think that they kind of want that safety net at the bottom as they're kind of re- they're really walking a tightrope right now. I think we, we realize that as fans. They're walking a tightrope with us as fans because Michael Bay had said before, it doesn't matter how lousy you think a Transformers movie is, you're still going to spend your money on it and you're still going to go see it. Well, that stopped happening with the last night. We're starting to see the chinks in the armor now. So it's only a matter of time before if Bumblebee bombs, that's going to be even more evidence that fans are just tired of it and they want to see this done correctly. So it'll be very interesting to see if they actually make that change and indeed start doing things correctly. Speaking of things that probably need a change, Newsarama put out the story that Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti are going to be leaving Harley Quinn for DC on December the 20th. That is going to be their last issue when that comes out. And while I think they've done a very, very good job with Harley up until this point in telling her story, it's time. I mean, I'll be totally honest. I I love Jimmy and I love Amanda and and their work, but it's time for a fresh perspective. It's time for a new look. And I think that this is is a brilliant move. And and even they said, and again, I want to paraphrase the statement that they put out that, you know, it's just time to move on. It's time for them to do different things. And it's time for someone else to take up the mantle with Harley. And I think what they need to do is what they did when Jimmy and Amanda jumped on board with Harley in the first place. And that's Do your own story. Do a completely new, from scratch, story with Harley. I'm not saying necessarily reboot it. I don't think you have to forget the entire story. But the way that Jimmy and Amanda kind of crafted things, I don't think you really want anybody else taking that story and running with it either. So I think you definitely want to start fresh here. And I'm thinking uh, Julie and Shauna Benson for this, actually. I would love to see, because what they've done with Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, I have loved. I would love to see. Julie and Shauna Benson get a crack at Harley, or even Shay Fontana. Let's give her a crack as well. Everything that she did with Wonder Woman and what she's doing with DC Superhero Girls, she sort of has kind of familiarity with Harley anyway, albeit in a different setting. But she's certainly got the essence of the character down, even a young Harley. So maybe give her a shot. But I think it needs to be a female writer. I think that that would be a really good way to keep Harley moving in the right direction. That's going to do it for Nerd News, and it's kind of fitting that we were talking about comics just now. Going to get back to talking to some comics this week. Going to talk to illustrator and writer Jim Rugg from Image Comics Street Angel. It's going to be next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Gene Ha, comic book artist and writer of May. And this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
Well, you guys might remember a comic that I reviewed not too long ago called Street Angel After School Kung Fu Special. We've got something brand new, as a matter of fact, called Superhero for a Day. And we have the writer and artist creator of Street Angel. It's Jim Rugg. Jim, how's it going, man? It's going great. Happy to be here. It just seems like forever since you, you've had Lost and Alcatraz Jr. and all the web comics up not too long ago and Jessica Sanchez punching people in the face on the web. So do you feel like that was kind of the perfect place for the homeless ninja to get her start? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I so many of the comics that I read, I see online in part, if not in whole. And uh, I can't imagine doing comics and not not having them available for people to read. And then now you make the transition into Image Comics, which kind of feels like the right home for Street Angel, actually. So talk a little bit about what that process was like going from a web a web comic to now having a hardcover edition that's going to be out on October the twenty fifth. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's been a major uh, change in my life this year. You know, this is the third Street Angel graphic novel to, that we're releasing this year through Image, and you know I've been making Street Angel stories. The first comics I ever had published were Street Angel stories like 10 years ago. And so, you know, it's a character that I've worked with whenever I'm able to. And the the webcomic was a chance to share some new Street Angel stories and now putting them in graphic novel form. Um, you know, I think it's new audiences. So it's a chance to put the book on library shelves and in bookstores and in comic book shop shelves. And hopefully, again, you know, finding more readers who who love this character and share my enthusiasm for her. Now let's talk a little bit about Superhero for a day for a second. We kind of see Jesse unintentionally give the hero spotlight to someone else. So what was it like to feature some of the other characters in that world that fans may not be familiar with yet? You know, that's become some of my favorite storytelling with Street Angel is building out this cast, especially her friends from middle school. I like using them. The more stories we tell with these characters, the more their personalities start to make sense to me and the, and the more they become strong characters on their own. So it was an idea. I have a writing partner, Brian Maruka, and you know we're constantly just throwing ideas back and forth. And we thought it would be interesting to see Street Angel suddenly not in that primary superhero role. Uh, you know, that's that's usually what attracts us to stories is the chance to kind of stretch her character out a little bit. And bringing on a supporting cast has really allowed us to play with that and have fun. Was the world building kind of part of what you wanted to do eventually, or did you always kind of see this in the beginning as a Jesse story? The world building is something that I've always valued as a reader and then as I started making comics. So that was always something we strive to do. You know, making her not necessarily the primary character, the, the writing is very organic for us. So this wasn't something we had in mind before we sort of started working on this story. And what happens is, you know, we'll come up with a concept. In this case, it was bringing a real superhero, uh, you know, face to face with her because we imply that she is a superhero in this world, but we don't see traditional spandex clad superheroes mm -hmm. the way you might think of superman or batman and so the chance to bring a superhero in and kind of have them standing face to face was probably the beginning point for this story idea and then it's just a matter of how do we get them to this point and you know how does this relate to the rest of her neighborhood or the rest of her cast and you start to kind of play with these ideas and see what sounds uh you know what makes sense for the characters We've seen a Halloween story from Street Angel before, but this book actually coming out really, really close to Halloween Superhero for a day. So if Jessie could dress up as anyone for Halloween, who would it be and what would her candy bar of choice be? Oh, wow. These are good. You know, I can't imagine her turning down any candy bar. Um, right. That said, probably a Snickers. I feel like that's that's pretty hardy for her. So that would be her candy bar of choice. 
As far as costumes go, man, that's a good one. Some some warm costume, maybe like an alpine skier, you know, decked out in a ski nice. suit and nice. bundled up. <laughs> I can see the Snickers commercial now, actually. You turn into Street Angel when you get angry. Better? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it fits. I, mean, I, that's I think just, it'd be perfect. That, that's Snickers. just something the Snickers people need to get the ball on. It just exactly. sounds like it makes sense to me. Now, one I, thing I, I would love to have some some, some endorsement oh, deals they, like they, that. There you go, Snickers people. Just this this is Jim Rugg that you need to be working <laughs> with because this guy, the writer and creator of Street Angel Comics, is somebody that you need to be working with. Trust me on that. Now, Jim, one of the things that absolutely positively made me fall in love with Street Angel was the art in these stories. It kind of felt like to me when I first started reading it. If like peanuts turned badass and started ninja kicking people, so were you kind of influenced at all by any comic strips in your art style? Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I love comics of all sorts, and comic strips are a big part of that. I found um, maybe ten years ago, I found a book called the Smithsonian Collection of Newspaper Comics. It's a big, oversized collection of all sorts of comics from maybe 1900 to 1950, 1960, something like that. And seeing them oversized, like I just read this thing for like five years, Um, you know, and it had adventure comics, you know, like Roy Crane, but it also had things like Peanuts, um, you know, and and since then, I think reprints of comic strips have gotten, we're in something of a golden age for reprints. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I like, I like most of them Uh, from Nancy to Dick Tracy. And, you know, it's an amazing storyteller because at the time, a lot of those comics and cartoonists were sort of like the top level of of where comics would be as a storytelling format. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were the best in the world. And those comics, there's still a lot of value in those comics for me and a lot of pleasure. Would there be a dream team up for you with Street Angel and another comic character? Almost any comic character would be a, a dream team up. Um, you know, I like to imagine her fighting Predator. Uh, I think about, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think, are an obvious uh, team up choice. Um, but then again, Nancy or Little Lulu, I think, would be equally entertaining. So, Oh, my gosh, Little Lulu, that would be hilarious. I can actually see that in my head right now. Well, I mean, we talked about world building a couple minutes ago. You really have made the neighborhood of Wilkesboro itself kind of into its own character in these stories. So what would you say is the worst part about living there? Oh, man. Well, for Jesse, it's not having a a stable place to stay. Uh, You know, it's probably the worst part for her. I'd say in general, it's just a very hopeless place. Uh, You know, it's there's not a lot of opportunities for people living there. And there's not a lot of examples of you know, ways to kind of lift yourself up and and improve your situation. So I think the hopelessness is probably one of the the toughest parts of that neighborhood. I actually wanted to talk about After School Kung Fu Fu Special for a second because we got to see a lot of action in that. It was just gorgeous art throughout. And if anyone hasn't read it yet, you definitely need to go get it. But we actually get to see some of Jesse's skateboarding skills this time as Superhero for a Day. And it felt like she was really able to have a little bit more fun in this issue. Would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I love the skateboarding part. You know, that's been part of her character from the get-go. And I'm a big fan of skateboarding. I'm terrible at it. But I used to uh, I used to watch skateboard videos as a kid, you know, and it would have been like Tony Hawk, I, I suppose, at that time. And, you know, like his, his group. And it always struck me as almost being like superheroes, watching, you know, watching skateboarders move because it was almost physics-defying. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, before special effects kind of started to illustrate moving superheroes, I always thought the skateboard was a great visual. And so, yeah, I, I like I, I like that she uses the skateboard, and any chance I get to draw her skateboarding is a welcome opportunity. You know, it's kind of, I, I say that she had more fun in this issue. She seems to have fun in a lot of the other issues as well. But there is, is there kind of an aspect 
of Jesse's character that you really haven't gotten to explore yet that maybe readers can look forward to in future issues? Yeah, you know, we get this question a lot, and, and it often is about her future, right? <laughs> like, uh, people worried about her, I suppose. And it's something that we think about and we talk about, but we haven't actually done a story kind of like showing this side of her resourcefulness, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I like to believe that she has what she needs to kind of like survive and move up, uh, you know, improve herself. And so that's something that we probably haven't shown very much of. And it's something that we have some story ideas in mind to show her, uh, you know, trying to make money, for instance. Yeah, (laughs) there you uh, go. You know, we have this idea that she does some detective work around around the neighborhood, uh, often with her quote unquote mentor, Bald Eagle, um, you know, and, and helping helping locals out, uh, whether it's solving crimes or retrieving stolen objects, things like that. So she has th- there are other facets of her personality that I think readers will enjoy. And it's just a matter of, I need more hours in the day. You know, I have a lot of stories I'd like to tell with her. Totally. Well, she we did get to see her do a little bit of detective work in Lost, though. Yes, she certainly flashes signs of that uh, here and there. Streetangelcomic.com, people, trust me. Go go there and you'll get to see a lot more Street Angel. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about when this book's going to be coming out, Superhero for a Day, which is October the 25th. Now, you know, Jim, that's very, very close to Stranger Things Season 2 coming out on Netflix. going to be here soon. So how do you think Jesse Sanchez would kind of fit into that group and who wins in a throwdown between her and Eleven? Oh, wow. I can't imagine them fighting each other. Um, You know, Jesse doesn't really lose fights, so I'd have to give her the edge, but I'm not sure how she would do that one. That that might be a good one for some fan fiction if if somebody's listening and up for the challenge. There you go. Do do you see her kind of fitting into that group, though? If she ends up in Hawkins, do you you see her kind of fitting in and helping out that group, knowing kind of what they're going through? And I'm not sure she'd be scared of any Demogorgons or anything. I think she would be a great addition to that group. And I... I think I know something about that season and, you know, it may not be as far off as, as you imagine. I, I can picture it right now and that would be amazing. And speaking of amazing, you guys have got to go get it. Street Angel Superhero for a Day hardcover edition. Going to be, be available at your local comic book shops and digitally on October the 25th. Also, I encourage you to go see more Street Angel absolutely at streetangelcomic.com. Writer, artist extraordinaire Jim Rugg, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me, James. Great to talk about Street Angel. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Thanks to Jim Rugg, illustrator and writer of Street Angel, superhero for a day. Make sure you go to streetangelcomic.com for more information on that. Also, imagecomics.com and grab your copy at your local shops and digitally on October the 25th. You can get more information on that on our website, too, downandnerdypodcast.com. That's also where you can connect with us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. But before I let you go, just a friendly reminder, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.